the Bible speaks about divorce. And our world speaks about divorce. And those two messages are different. Tonight, I would like us to study the Bible's teaching on the topic of divorce. So open your Bibles to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 10. There are three groups of people you are not yet married. So young people, you need to take this message into your heart before you are married. Then there are those who are happily married. Let this message strengthen your joy. And then there are those who have made mistakes. And that is going to be very difficult. But the Bible has the answer for difficult situations as well. And we need to follow sola scriptura, the Bible alone. So let us turn now to the book of Mark chapter 10. And if you have the handouts, you can make notes right there on the handout. But I gave that to you so that you would be able in general to follow the the flow of the argument. Mark chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 2 and go down to verse 12. Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 10, verse 2. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, to divorce his wife? And they were tempting him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses tell you? What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write a bill of divorce and to put her away. Jesus answered and said to them, For the stubbornness and hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, will a man leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and they too will be one flesh. So then they are no more two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said to them, whoever will put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman will put away her husband and be married to another She commits adultery. Are we prepared to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow his words? Before I begin, does anyone need a Bible? Does anyone need a Bible? I think a few people do. Lloyd, can you grab some Bibles from there and pass them out to whoever needs? I think three maybe. Our Lord has given us teaching here. and What I would like to do is go verse by verse basically through this passage before turning to other passages in the New Testament that discuss the doctrine of divorce and remarriage. So first of all, notice in verse 2, what is the attitude of these men? Are they trying to learn or are they trying to deceive? They're trying to trick him, to catch him. They're trying to find a way to ensnare this good man and his good teaching. So how does he answer them in verse 3? 
Look at the very end of verse 3. What's the last mark in your Bible? The very last mark in verse 3. It's a question mark, isn't it? He answers their question with a question. You ask me a question. May I divorce, may a man divorce his wife? And I ask you, what do you read in the Bible? Now, why would Jesus do this? For two reasons. Number one, he lived an entirely biblical life. He was always drawing men back to the Bible. And secondly, because he wanted to raise within them the hardness of their own hearts. So they answer him in verse 4. And what do they say? They say, Moses allowed divorce. Now, if you are taking notes, or if you maybe have it in your Bible, you can mark down Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 3. Does anyone need a pen? Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 3, is the passage that Jesus is referring to, or that they are referring to in the book of Mark. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1, 2, and 3. And in that passage, the Old Testament law gives discussion of divorce. That was into the Old Covenant. But now notice this. He answers their question without equivocation. Verse 5. Jesus answered and said to them, This was written because you're stubborn and hard. What was written? What was written because they were stubborn and hard? The permission of divorce. In the old covenant, you were stubborn and hard-hearted. So do you think that pleased God? God allowed them, in the old covenant, divorce. But he answers, this was only written for hardness of heart. Look at verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And though this is not a sermon on this particular verse, let me just make two observations from verse 6. Some people believe that the history of the world is billions and billions of years. And then... Came man, maybe 200,000 years ago. Where does Jesus put Adam and Eve? In the beginning. If evolution is true, then this wall would be the Big Bang, and that wall would be 2021. It's billions of years from one wall to the other. Which means 2021 is here and Adam and Eve would be right here. Just two inches from this farther wall. But Jesus says Adam and Eve were when? From the? Which destroys evolution's perspective on what they call deep time. Billions and billions of years. Our Lord didn't believe in deep time. He believed that Adam and Eve came from the? And the second thing you can notice is that God made them from the beginning what? Male and female. Our world despises creation in six days because it's Christian. That's why they teach evolution all around the world. 
and our world despises manhood and womanhood. That's why we have homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, and every other vile and foolish attack on the God of the Bible. The reason some man in Europe or America or in Johannesburg would say, I know I was born as a man, but I really feel like I am a woman. The reason deep in his heart, whether he admits it or not, the reason he does that is he hates the God of the Bible and he's showing his disregard for the God of the Bible. And if someone says, how can you know what that man is thinking? It's very easy. The creator of the world told me. He told me what those men are thinking in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. He already told us men are always doing this kind of thing. They have hated God and attacked God from the beginning. From the time when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they have been hating and attacking God. And their actions always bend that way unless there's grace to stop them. That's just a side point. Let's get back to our discussion at hand. Notice who instituted marriage. It's God who made them male and female. This was not a social construct. This is not something that we can mold and shape. God made it. Notice verse 7. Marriage here in verse 7 creates a bond that is stronger than parent and child. A man is going to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. In verse 8, who has the right to separate? In verse 8, who has the right to separate husband and wife? In verse 8, no one. They are no more two, but they are one. In verse 9, who has the right to separate? No one does. No one has the right to separate these two. What answer does Jesus give to the question, may we divorce our wives? In this passage, in these verses, up to verse 9, what is Jesus' answer? No, no divorce. Now, let me ask you a deeper question here. Is it very clear that Jesus' answer is no? Or is it, well, it looks like it's no, but it's not, it's not quite clear. It's like his answer was like looking at your friend at 9 o'clock at night when he's down the street. I, I think that's my friend. I think that's Alpheus. Is that the way Jesus' answer is? Or is it as clear as day, two meters away, I know that man. How clear is it? Okay, up to verse 9, it is absolutely clear. Let's see what happens in verse 10. Verse 10. And in the house, notice that this is privately. Where was he before he was in the house? Go back to verse 2. Where was he? He's outside with who? The Pharisees. And look back at verse 1. Now, who is he with in verse 1? Oh, Jesus gave his answer about no divorce and no remarriage in front of a crowd of people and false teachers who are trying to trick him. 
So here these guys, they say to themselves, hey, look, there's thousands of people there. Let's get him now. Let's trap him now in front of all those people. They'll hear what he said, and we'll pass it around on what's up. Let's catch him now. Jesus gave the answer. Very clear, very plain. Do you read your Bible? Uh, yeah, it's in Deuteronomy. Uh, uh, Moses said we can divorce. Yeah, he did that because you're stubborn and backward and hard-hearted. But from the beginning, no. God made marriage. No one can separate. That's it. Finishing claro. Now what do we do? The disciples ask him, look in verse 10. There's two interesting words here. In the house is the first phrase, but notice the word again. They asked him for the second time in the house. They say, we got your answer, but you're going to have to clarify because how could anyone live with no divorce? Why would they ask him a second time unless his answer was shocking? Does that make sense? Why would they ask him in the house if they were agreeing with him? If the disciples, Peter and James and John, are sitting there saying, Amen, no divorce. They asked him in the house because he shocked them. The answer of our Lord Jesus is a shocking answer. So whatever he's teaching, it's not easy or popular. If your view of divorce and remarriage is either easy or somewhat popular, it's probably not what Jesus Christ was teaching. Because when Jesus teaches it, by the way, toward the end of his ministry, so his disciples have already heard very hard things like, take up your cross every day, deny yourself. They've already heard things like, the Son of Man doesn't have a house. Follow me. They've already heard things like, I came to separate father and mother. Or, I'm sorry, father and son, mother and child. They've already heard very hard teachings like Luke 14, where he says, you're going to have to forsake all. All you have if you want to be my disciple. They've already heard a lot of very controversial, difficult teachings. Does that make sense? Now they hear this teaching and they say, we have to ask him. I can just imagine the disciples, you ask him. No, you ask him. Let's go in the house. We can't ask him. Look at the people. If we ask him in public, the Pharisees will say, aha, see, we've divided him and his disciples. We can't. Shh, shh, stop talking. Quiet. We'll ask him in the house. They get in the house and say, Master, Master, we have a question. What's their question? Verse 10. They ask him again of the same matter. Verse 11. And he said to them, Whoever will put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman puts away her husband and is married to another, she commits adultery. Is this permission for divorce or a rejection of divorce. It's a rejection of divorce as an option for believers. Twice. Very clearly. Not confused. Not hidden. Not difficult. In fact, 
let me just make a comment here about the Gospel of Mark. Mark is much shorter than Matthew or Luke. Mark is what we call a synoptic. S-Y-N, optic. Syn, Greek word meaning together. Optic, Greek word meaning eyes. Seeing together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record many of the same stories. That's why we call those three the synoptics. Those three are the gospel that see things together. But among those three, a few years ago when I was reading my Bible, I took the book of Mark and I compared it verse by verse with Matthew and Luke. And every time I found a difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, anytime I found something that only Mark covers, I circled it. So in my Bible, I can see everything that Mark has that the others don't have. And can you believe it? This passage right here is in the book of Matthew. But there are things that Mark has that Matthew doesn't have. And this passage is not at all in the book of Luke. But further than that, Mark is a very short book. It's almost half the size of Matthew and Luke. Most of the teaching sections of Jesus Christ are not recorded in Mark, or if they are, they're very short. For example, to this section, Luke only gives one verse. Luke gives one verse. In Luke 16, verse 18, he says, A man may not divorce his wife or marry another. That's it. Full stop. One verse. Luke 16, verse 18. No divorce, no remarriage. It's done. Why is it that Mark, even though he cuts out so many things, Sermon on the Mount, that's not in this book. Why not? Uproom Discourse, that's not in this book. Most of the miracles, they're just hinted at and then gone. The teaching of the Pharisees, Matthew 23, a, a lengthy passage where Jesus attacks the Pharisees. It's in Mark, I'm sorry, it's in Matthew and Luke. It's not in Mark. Mark, Matthew chapter 10, the discussion sending out the disciples, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke, it's not in Mark. Why is it that when it comes to divorce, he makes sure that it's in here? Such a short book. Mark is written to the Romans. Almost all commentators agree with that. That's why one repeated word that goes throughout the book of Mark is immediately, immediately, immediately. It's not found in Matthew and Luke. It's found in Mark, immediately. Jesus went here immediately. The Romans may have been more action-oriented in their culture. They may have been prepared for exciting stories like Zeus on the mountain. And so what we have here is the summary of the greatest events of our Lord. But in the midst of that, They had to make sure that they included this story. Who is Mark written to? The Romans. Take your Bible and go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. This is a book that's written to what group? The Roman Christians. So the Roman Christians first received the book of Romans... And then maybe 10 years later, they received the book of Mark. We don't know exactly when Mark was written, but it had to be sometime before 70 AD. The book of Romans probably was written 15 years earlier, 12 years earlier. 
So now look at Romans chapter 7 and let's read verses 1 to 4. Romans 7 verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I speak to those that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he, what? Verse 2. For, now he's going to give an example. Okay, look, what did he just say? The law is your, is your master as long as you are alive. Let me give you an example, verses 2 and 3. Let's see the example that he uses to show you've got to obey the law of God as long as you are alive. Verses 2 and 3. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her what? As long as he lives. But if the husband is dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband is alive, she is married to another man, she will be called what? An adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, even though she's married to another man. Verse 4, let's see his theological point. Wherefore, my brothers, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, so that you should be married to another. All believers are married to Christ. Before you were married to Christ, who were you married to? The law. How could you possibly get away from your marriage to the law? There has to be death. You can't give a divorce to the law. You've got to die. That's the clear teaching of Romans 7, 1 to 4. I checked commentaries on this passage. I couldn't find any commentary that disagreed. Now, I didn't check far and wide. I checked a few that I have. There may be some that would disagree with that, but I can't imagine how they would. If you want to be married to Christ, you're going to have to end your first marriage. And there's only one way in Romans 7 to end a marriage. Tell me, what's the one way to end a marriage in Romans 7? Death. Death. Now, is that clear or is that, a, well, it's not very clear, but maybe. It's 100% it's clear, which is why, amazingly, even the commentators admit, yeah, Paul is clearly saying the only way out of marriage to the law is what? Death. There's no divorce here. You can't come to law and say, you know what? You and I aren't getting along. You keep telling me not to lust and I keep lusting. So let's just do this. Let's agree to part. You take your stuff. I'll take my stuff. We're just going to divorce. That's not an option in Romans chapter. Right. If, if you're a sinner, you come to church and you start to feel, yo, here I am stealing, here I am cheating, here I am proud, here I am boastful, here I am lusting, here I am greedy, here I am covetous, here I am lazy. You know what? Every time I read the Bible, I feel like I'm a bad person. You know what? Let's just do this law. You sit on your side. You'd go your way and do your thing with your people. But me and you, I'm not going to go your way anymore. I'm just going to divorce you. That's not a possibility in Romans chapter the only way to get away from those guilty feelings, one of you has to, and then you're going to have to be raised with Christ, Colossians chapter 3. You're going to have to be brought back to life or born again. You're going to have to be born a second time in order to be married to who? In Romans chapter 7, we have an argument that 
absolutely, positively, very clearly depends on no divorce under any circumstances. It's irrefutable. And this book is written to what group of people? And what group of people got that other passage that we just read? The Romans, the book of Mark. When Mark wrote Romans and when Paul wrote, I'm sorry, when Mark wrote Mark to the Romans and when Paul wrote Romans to the Romans, they both believed this is good for you. No divorce, no remarriage. But there's something else. Go to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Now this passage does not mention divorce, but it mentions the positive side of divorce. Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Even in what way? How are they to love in verse 25? You've got to love in a certain way. Don't love the way you're thinking about. Don't love your wife the way you love Baal. Don't love your wife the way you love your job. Don't love your wife the way you love money. Don't love your wife the way you love ice cream. Don't love your wife the way you love your mother. No, no, no. You've got to love your wife in a certain way. What's the way? Like Christ loves the church. I've put this in your handout if you want to see, but I've got a proposition. I've got a syllogism here. Syllogisms are tools that were codified by Aristotle, the Greek philosopher and logician. Aristotle came up with this idea. There's a tool called a syllogism. It compares three ideas. You put one idea compared with the other idea in the first line. In the second line, you compare two ideas again, and then again in the third line. So if you have your pens, you can mark A, B, C on these lines. Look in proposition number one. A husband must be like Jesus Christ in his love for his bride. On, um, on proposition number one, write a letter A or a number one above the word husband. That's our first term. So we're comparing a husband. And then number two is like Jesus Christ in his love for his bride. There's number two. There's the two terms we're comparing. A husband and we're comparing Jesus in his love for his bride. Then look at proposition number two. Jesus Christ in his love for his bride never divorces his bride. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ never divorces his bride. And I just added those words in there so you'd see it clearly. Jesus Christ, in his love for his bride, never divorces his bride. So in proposition number two, over Jesus Christ, put the same mark that you put in proposition one. So did you put number two or letter B? Then put that same thing over Jesus Christ in proposition number two. Did you follow that? In proposition number one, you've got two terms. Now you're in proposition two and you're repeating those terms. But you now have a third term. Jesus Christ never divorces his bride. Put the letter C over bride. That's our three ideas right there. The husband, Jesus Christ, the bride. We're going we're gonna to try to come to truth by comparing these three ideas. Now look at the conclusion. Jesus Christ, 
I'm sorry, a husband must never divorce his bride. Over husband, put number one or letter A. And over bride, put number three or letter C. So did you see that? So in each proposition, you should have two numbers or two letters. Are you following that? What Aristotle taught is this. If you have correctly arranged your syllogism, it always gives you 100% accuracy. Now you tell me, is proposition number one correct? Number one, a husband must be like Jesus Christ in his love for his bride. Is that true or false? True. Could, could proposition number one in any way be false? Is there any way that number one could be false? I'm not asking if a husband loves his wife. I'm asking, should he? Should. should. Is the, it is a good thing if he loves his wife like Christ loves the church. So is proposition number one true or false? True. Is there any way proposition number one could be false? No. no. Now look at proposition number two. Jesus Christ never divorces his bride. True or false? Is there any way that proposition number two could be false? Will Jesus, it's never possible. John 13 verse 1, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the, to the very end. He will never divorce his bride. Proposition number one cannot be false. Proposition number two cannot be false. Then we cannot get around the conclusion. Look at the conclusion. A husband must never divorce his bride. That's what the Puritans called the moral syllogism. You see, the first line comes right from the Bible. This is what husbands should do. The second line, it also comes from the Bible, or you can look in life. And if the first line and the second line are true, the third line must be true. So what's the answer to our question? Can a man divorce his wife? Mark, not possible, from the lips of Jesus, two times. Romans, written to the same group of people before they got the epistle, no way. If you could divorce your wife, then there's a second way to be free from the law. And if there's two ways to be free from the law, that means there's two ways to go to heaven. So what's the answer? Can a man divorce his wife? The answer is no. But... Let me ask you, how many of you have ever seen the verse in the Bible that says, do not divorce except for fornication? If you've seen that verse, would you put your hand up? Let's go look at that now. Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew 19. Now we've just looked at Mark, and it says no. Now Matthew 19 is before us. And it's the same exact account as in Mark, but it has a few different details. So look at the book of Matthew, and what we're going to do is we're just going to look at verse 9, because all the sides agree. Everyone agrees. Verse 9 is the only hard part. Okay? This is the controversy, is verse 9. So let's all look at verse 9. Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever will put away his wife, except for fornication and will marry another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is put away commits adultery what is added in verse 9 that's not in the book of Mark 
except for fornication. Three words. Those three words are in Matthew twice. Matthew 5, verse 32, it's in your handout. And Matthew 19, verse 9. Those three words are twice in Matthew's gospel, and they're not in Mark's gospel. Why would they be here? What do they mean? Why would he have this? Notice first in verse 6, Matthew 19, verse 6. We all agree on this. Wherefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus forbids divorce already in Matthew 19. He gave no exceptions. He just cut it off. No exception. It's done. No questions asked. Well, but they come back and they do have questions. We do have questions. But did Jesus offer any more information? No. He just answers the question. No. No man can separate. But they say, wait just a minute. And in verse 7, they ask a question. They say to him, well, what about Moses? Verse 8. Hardness of your hearts. That's not the way it was from the beginning. And then he puts this exception in there. Now look at verse 10. The disciples say unto him, and we know this from the book of Mark, where did they say this to him? In the room, privately. If the case of the man is so with his wife, it is not good to do what? We should never get married if this is the way things are. Now, are the disciples shocked? Yes, they are. They ask him in the house a second time, though he already gave a clear answer. And now they say, Jesus, whatever your teaching is so hard, I don't even know if we should get married. Now, let me tell you, this phrase, except for fornication, those three words, except for fornication... There are three views of that, those words, okay? Here it are. Number one, Jesus allows divorce for almost any reason if the husband and wife aren't happy. You follow that? Now, I don't agree with that. I'm just saying some people teach that. Some people teach. I have a book in my study that teaches you may be divorced for almost any reason if the husband and wife are not happy. Now, if Jesus was teaching, you can be divorced for almost any reason, would the disciples say, it's better not to get married? No. Okay, so verse one, uh, I'm sorry, option one doesn't fit with anything. Option one is rubbish. But then there's option two. And the majority of Christian pastors, good and godly men, hold to option two. Option two is this. Jesus allowed divorce if there were sexual sin in the marriage. If the husband was unfaithful, either through pornography or lust or through adultery, if the wife was unfaithful, then Jesus allows for divorce. If that's what Jesus was teaching, would the disciples really be shocked? Maybe, but it's hard to see. 
it's hard to see that the disciples would be shocked saying, it's better not to get married than to have this. The only way I can explain the shock of the disciples in verse 10 is if Jesus is teaching something very difficult. Now, let me tell you one other thing about this passage. There were two very popular schools in Jesus' day. Hillel and Shammai. And one of the schools said, you can divorce your wife For almost anything. If you and her don't get along, you can divorce her. Some rabbis even say it's very easy to get a divorce. You can just basically tell her, I don't want you anymore, and the divorce is done. That was the very easy school. The hard school said you cannot divorce unless there's really big problems between you. Like divorce, or you're trying to kill her, there's abuse, I'm sorry, like uh, um, fornication or adultery, or she's trying to kill you, or you're trying to kill her. Unless there's major problems, you cannot get divorced. Now, almost everyone in Jesus' day held to one of those two schools, Hillel or Shammai. The disciples knew about those two schools. The Pharisees knew about those two schools. The Pharisees were asking Jesus this question to try to see where is he going to fall. If he falls with Hillel, we'll just say, ha, see, he lets anything go. And if he falls with Shammai, then we'll tell all the people, look, he's really strict. You don't want to go with him. He's too strict for you. The, The Pharisees were trying to put Jesus in one of the two camps, Hillel or Shammai. The disciples' response in verse 10 proves that he did not go with either of those two camps. If Jesus says, oh, um, you know, I've considered this and I, w- I go with Shammai. Well, there would be a lot of people in Israel who go with Shammai. Why would the disciples be shocked? And if, they, if he goes with Hillel, there's a lot of people who hold to that school. Why would the disciples say, oh, so, so that's where you fall. Okay, we didn't know that. Now we know you fall in that school. Verse 10 only makes sense if he's saying, there's a third school. It's the Christian school. It's the school of Christ. That's the only thing that makes verse 10 make sense. Otherwise, what is verse 10 in the Bible for? Why would the disciples come in and say, privately, we gotta, I'll tell you, this is shocking. We never knew you held to Shammai along with 50% of the country. Why would they go, I can't believe you hold to a halal along with the other 50% of the country. There's no reason that this makes sense unless Jesus is saying, like he often does, don't look at what you've always heard. Don't look at what you've always heard. I'm teaching the laws of Christ. Now, it just so happens that there is in this book an explanation of what happened. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And look at verse 1. Whose names do you see in Matthew 1, verse 1? Jesus and David and Abraham. This reminds us what all the commentators agree on. The book of Matthew was written to who? 
Jews. Matthew is written to the Jews. Romans is written to, I'm sorry, Mark is written to the Romans or the Gentiles. Everyone agrees Matthew is written to the Jews. Look at verse 1, David and Abraham. But if you read Luke, it goes all the way back to Adam. In, in Matthew, he only goes back to Abraham. He's just saying, look, look, this Jesus Christ, he has roots in Abraham, the father of all the Jews. The Jews had their own culture and their own customs taught and influenced by the Torah. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ happened in this way. When his mother Mary was betrothed to who? Before they came together, she was found with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, then Joseph, her what? They haven't come together yet, but what does the Bible call him? Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not willing to embarrass her in public, wanted to put her away privately. Verse 20, while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take to you Mary your what? Mary, your wife, but you haven't come together yet. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary and Joseph had not lived together yet, but they were what in verse 18? They were husband and wife, and there's a word that starts with a B. Betrothed. We don't have that word today because we don't have that custom from the Jews, just like Lobola. Well, maybe there's some similarities, but Lobola is basically, it's African. Whites don't have Lobola. Jews didn't have Lobola. Blacks don't have betrothal. Europeans don't have betrothal. It was an unusual system. It was a system that the Jews had. And here was the system. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, let me read to you the footnote from the New American Standard Bible. It says, the first stage of marriage in Jewish culture, usually lasting for a year before the wedding night, more legal than an engagement. Did you follow that? What is betrothal? It's the first stage in Jewish marriage, and it's more legal than European and Western engagement. When I wanted to marry Monacombi, I gave her a ring and said, I'm going to marry you whenever our time is ready. Your parents agree whenever we all agree. That was not legal at all. There was nothing in the eyes of the law. It was just her and I. We agreed. I gave and her family, mom and dad, her mom and dad. I gave her the ring and she said, it's beautiful. I said, you're beautiful. And it was just between the two of us. And if I broke that, there was no policeman who was going to come to my house and say, what'd you do? There was no court of law where she could say, oh, you broke the engagement? I want 5,000 rand. There was nothing she could do, but there was something you could do in Jewish culture. If Joseph said to Mary, I don't want you, after betrothal and before they lived together, she could say, why? You can't do this to me. You started this and you broke it up. I'm getting the elders. We're going to stop. You can't do that. There's going to be penalty for this because we were husband and wife, though we weren't yet husband and wife completely. 
The marriage had not been consummated, but the marriage had some legal standing. You only find this account in the book of Matthew. The book of Luke is longer than Matthew, and it spends much longer on the birth of Jesus, but it doesn't tell us that story. Did Luke's readers understand betrothal? No. Who's reading the book of Matthew? And who has the custom of betrothal? So what does Matthew include? He includes the story of betrothal because his readers know what it's talking about. It's as if I write you a letter and I talk about Lobola and then I write a letter to my churches that support me in America and I don't talk about Lobola. And you say, what are you doing? Are you hiding? No, they don't know that particular custom. I thought, I'm, rather than explain it, I'll just say whatever. Dakaro and Deneo got married. What are you, why, why didn't you say they paid Lobola? They don't know about this. Now, perhaps you might want to write it in your letter. But the point is this. Matthew includes betrothal because the Jews knew about it. His audience knew about it. Mark doesn't include it because they don't know about it. So, when Matthew talks about divorce, he includes, except for fornication, because the Bible says that Joseph was what kind of man in verse 19? He was a righteous man. If Joseph was seeking for a divorce when they were legally married, he was an unrighteous man. So Jesus says, oh, don't think anything bad about my dad. My foster father, my stepfather that raised me as a baby, don't you dare say something bad about him because the Jews were saying bad things about him. They said, oh, you were born from fornication. No, no, no. Don't say bad things about my parents because I'm obeying the fifth commandment to honor my father and my mother. And in Matthew 5.32, I'm honoring Joseph, my stepfather. He tried to divorce my mother, but he had a right because he thought he saw fornication in my mother. And you can divorce if you are betrothed, but not yet coming together. In that setting, yes, except for this. It was allowed under those circumstances. The exception clause appears to refer to the betrothal period. Now, ask me this question. How clear is it that when Matthew 19 verse 9 says, no divorce, no remarriage, except for fornication... How clear is it that the words, except for fornication, refer to betrothal? It's not as clear. I'm admitting that up front. Mark 10, how clear? Very clear. Romans 7, how clear? Very clear. Ephesians 5, how clear? Very clear. Whoa, what about Matthew 19, 9, except for fornication? That refers to the betrothal period. How clear? It's not as clear. I openly admit It's hard. But which is more hard? Which is more hard? Seeing that Joseph tried to divorce Mary because of fornication, that it fits the betrothal period, what's more difficult? Seeing that and that Jesus referred to Matthew 1, is that more difficult? Or is it more difficult to go to Romans 7 and say, oh, actually there's two ways to be freed from the law. You can die or you can divorce the law. I can't see that at all. 
So, so are you following this? Did I lose you? Equating the exception clause with betrothal, is that hard or easy? It's a little hard. The difficulty, if I put my hands, might be that high. But the difficulty of seeing Romans 7 with the divorce pitch, that difficulty is 25 meters. I cannot possibly see how you get divorce in Romans 7 or in Ephesians 5 or in Mark 10 or in Luke 16 or in 1 Corinthians 7. Go in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is the last passage that deals with this difficult doctrine. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we need to look at this. I have referenced all six passages in the New Testament that touch divorce and remarriage. And the seventh one was free, Ephesians 5. It doesn't mention divorce, but I think it clearly teaches no divorce with that syllogism. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now in this passage, all of chapter 7 is discussing marriage difficulties. Let's start in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10. And to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. So where does Paul get his teaching from? Jesus. Whatever Paul's going to tell us, he got this from Jesus. And yet I'm commanding something, not I but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. That word depart, almost all commentators agree, it means divorce. Let not the wife do what? Divorce her husband. So in verse 10, is there divorce or no divorce? Okay, verse 11. And if she departs, let her remain unmarried. Or be reconciled to who? And do not let the husband divorce His wife. Again, is there divorce or no divorce in verse 11? Look at verse 12. But to the rest I am speaking, not the Lord. Now here's something that Jesus didn't talk about. The Holy Spirit revealed it straight to Paul. Verse 11. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is pleased to dwell with him, let him not divorce her. So, so here's a guy. He's married a girl. She's not a Christian, but he is a Christian. If she's happy, then don't. No divorce. No, don't do that. So in verse, thir- in verse 12, divorce or no divorce? Verse 13. And the woman who has a husband who is not a believer, if she is pleased to dwell with, if he is pleased to dwell with her, Let her not divorce him. In verse 13, divorce or no divorce? How many times in a row did we see no divorce? Four times. Verse 10, 11, 12, 13. How many times? Four times in a row. This is Paul the Apostle writing, and he says, you know, Jesus taught no divorce. Now, Jesus didn't teach about this, but I'm teaching. The Holy Spirit told me, I'm telling you, no divorce. How many times? Now, Some people find in verse 15, divorce. Let's read verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart or divorces. If the unbeliever wants a divorce, let him divorce. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. In verse 15 and only verse 15, some people believe 
that that allows us to divorce our wives. Do you see how divorce is allowed in verse 15? Let's read it again. Do you see where divorce is? Verse 15. But if the unbeliever divorces, let him divorce. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to what? They see the word bondage. Look down at the word bondage. A brother or sister is not under what? They take the word bondage and this is what they say. If you're living with an unbeliever who wants a divorce, you also can go get a divorce because you're not under bondage. Did you follow that? You didn't follow that. If you're living with an unbeliever and the unbeliever says, Oh, you, you make me so angry. I'm always fighting. I can't stand you. I think we should get a divorce. Oh, really? You want a divorce? Okay, I'll get a divorce. Some people think that's what's being taught because of the phrase, not under bondage. Now, let me ask, is that clear or unclear? That is not clear at all. Four times he just said, no divorce, no divorce, no divorce, no divorce. It seems to me what verse 15 is saying is very simple. If you're married to a man who does not love Jesus, but you love Jesus, and the man hates God and says, you know what? I don't want to be married to you. If you want to leave, you can leave. I'm not going to go get a lawyer. I'm not... I'm not doing that thing. I'm not divorcing you. If you want to divorce me, you can divorce me. In verse 15, verse 15 is saying, if an unbeliever wants to divorce, the unbeliever is free to do. The unbeliever can murder people. Well, how are you supposed to stop? You can call the police, but you can't control that person. If the unbeliever wants to sin, the unbeliever can, he's got the answer before God. You are not under bondage to continue to fight for the marriage. You don't have to feel bad, Christian woman, if your husband is a wicked man and hates God and he says he wants a divorce and you come, no, no, you can't divorce. No, please, I'll give anything. I'll do anything. Okay, fine, change this and this and don't go to church. Okay, I'll fine, I'll do all those things. And then six months later, still back to the same thing. Oh, please don't, please don't, I'll change anything. Okay, don't go to church. Don't read your Bible. Okay, okay, anything. No, no. What he's saying is, if the man is wicked and doesn't want to live with you, you say to him, I love you and I'm not going to remarry because I love like Christ loves. I want you to come to the truth, but I'm not going to divorce you because Jesus will never divorce me. But if you're going to divorce me, I can't stop. I can't stop you from walking out the door. I can't stop you from getting in your car. I can't stop you from hitting me. I can't stop you from doing all those things, but I can stop me from not loving you. That make sense? I can love you even if you don't love me. So if you want a divorce, that's your decision. You're going to have to answer to God for that. But I'm going to answer to God for loving you until you die. I, I see that so clearly in verse 15. That it's difficult for me to understand how people get divorce out of it. I do understand how they get it. But especially in light of this. I told you 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about what? 
marriage. Go to the very end of the chapter, verse 39. He's going to summarize his whole argument in verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband does what? But if her husband is dead, she is at liberty to be married to whoever she will, only in the Lord. In verse 39, is there divorce or no divorce? What is the only thing that can end a marriage in verse 39? And that's the way he closes his argument. Paul does this often, summarizing what he just taught. Now, I close with this comment, just a few comments here. The people who believe that divorce is allowable will say, Matthew 19 verse 9 means you can be divorced if there's adultery. And 1 Corinthians 7.15 means you can be divorced if your spouse wants to leave. Those two. You follow that? The people who believe in divorce will say you can get divorced for two reasons. If your husband is unfaithful with another woman... Or if your husband wants to leave you. Those two. What we all agree on is this. Jesus does not want a society where divorce is common. But if those two stand, divorce will be very common. For this reason. What are the two? What are the two reasons you could get a divorce from those people? The people who believe you can divorce. What are the two reasons? Number one, if the husband commits. And number two, if the husband wants to leave. But listen to this. If the husband commits adultery, some teachers say, in fact, many teachers say, that includes pornography. So if the husband looks at dirty pictures, the wife can leave. I knew a husband and wife where the wife wanted to leave the husband because she said, he's always looking at my friends. Even when they come to visit me, he's looking. And that's fornication in his mind because Jesus said, if you've looked at her with lust, you've committed fornication in your mind. Another woman said, my husband, these are people that I've talked with about their marriages. Another woman said, my husband is always watching movies that have dirty pictures on it. And scenes with immorality and adultery. Can I divorce him for that? Because he's committing fornication when he watches those movies. Do you see what happened now? We all agree that Jesus wants divorce to be very uncommon. But if you allow divorce for fornication, then you're basically allowing almost, you're allowing many marriages to get divorced. If a guy watches dirty pictures, he committed fornication. If a girl reads a book that has dirty things in it, well, that's right. And if someone says, oh, that's a caricature, I have the book on my shelf where a very well-known, famous man who writes lots of books and he's very influential with pastors says, it can even count if he lusts. That is, if the husband lusts, the wife is free to divorce him. What about, so the first option is fornication. But if that's allowable, then a lot of marriages can be broken up. It's not going to be one out of a thousand. It's going to be one out of five. The second option, if the husband wants to leave, then the wife can get a divorce. 
But in another book I have by, by the same famous guy I just mentioned who writes lots of books, he was actually summarizing the findings of an entire denomination in America. So this is hundreds of pastors. And he put it in his book, and I can show you the page number if you want to see it. This, man, this whole denomination said, let me strongly encourage every one of you young people, if you are not yet married, settle it in your heart before tension comes, before problems come, before difficulties come in marriage, I will not divorce. It's not an option. I will follow that because if you say, well, it's an option in just that little corner over there, the time will come when there's that big fight at 1130 at night and then the word will sneak out and six months later, another fight comes and the word slipped out again. But if you anchor your feet and say, Mark 10, it can't happen. Ephesians 5, love like Christ loves the church. I want to encourage all of us to take the permanence view. That is, marriage is permanent. It only ends with death. That's it. It's till death do us part. And my good friend asked me, for those people who believe in divorce, should they at the marriages say, I promise to love, honor, and cherish you until death or desertion or adultery. <laughs> Don't say that in your marriage. Don't say that at your wedding. I want you to say at your wedding, I promise to love you until death. That's what you should say. And that's what you should do by God's grace. Let's close in prayer. Open your Bibles to John chapter 14. John 14. Does anyone need a Bible? John chapter 14. John 14. This morning's message will be coming from verses 28 to 31. John 14, 28 to 31. These are the final words that the Lord Jesus speaks as he prepares not only to die but to leave the upper room. Notice the very last words of the chapter. Arise, let us depart. Let us go from here. Those words indicate that Jesus is leaving the upper room. So chapters 13 and 14 are the discussion that he had around the table. But chapters 15 and 16 are the discussion that he has walking to the garden and in the garden. And we'll begin that, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. But this morning we want to see what he says at the end, just before he walks out of the last building where he will be in peace. He is going to go to the garden and he will lose his freedom in that garden as a man, his freedom as a man. He will be grabbed and chained by Judas with possibly 200 soldiers. And then he will be taken to custody, illegally tried three times, and at the end of three illegal trials, they will decide that they must murder the Son of God. What will he say in the last moments before he leaves that room. Here it is in verse 28. You have heard 
how I said to you, I go away and come back to you. Let that serve for an introduction. You have heard something. What did they hear? They heard that Jesus is leaving them. When did they hear that? Chapter 14, verse 1. I'm going away. Verse 2. But if I go, I will come again. They heard it in chapter 13. When Jesus told them, I'm leaving. And then Peter stands up and says, I'll go with you. Jesus says, you can't go with me now. But you'll come with me soon enough. Jesus has told them, I am leaving, but I will come back. What's remarkable is he brings their minds back to what he said because they were not remembering or thinking correctly about it. How do I know that? Because four different disciples speak about His words, and they're confused each time. Peter, in chapter 13, says, "Ah, I'll come with you. No, you don't understand. I'm going to die. And you don't have that courage, and you don't have that calling yet. Thomas says, "We, you're wrong, Jesus. We don't know where you're going. When Jesus said, you do know where I'm going. Philip comes in and says, how can we... Possibly know God. You haven't, we don't, we don't know who God is. And Jesus says, have I been so long with you, Philip, and you don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jude comes back, Judas, not Iscariot, comes back and speaks to him as well in chapter 14. So we have four disciples who misunderstood what Jesus was saying. And so just before he leaves the house, he says, let's make things clear. I told you already, but you did not grasp it clearly. Think clearly about what I said. So this morning, I would like to preach to you on this subject. The right response to revelation. I would like this morning to give you Four right responses to Revelation. Jesus revealed himself to them and said, you have heard that I'm going and coming again. Now, if you had listened correctly, then these certain things, these four things would have followed. Brothers and sisters, we are in a great danger right now because God has revealed himself through Christ. And <coughs> if you do not respond rightly to that revelation, you will reap the consequences of a very foolish response. I want to prepare you this morning by giving you the right responses to revelation. How else has God revealed himself? I just said one. God revealed himself how? Through Jesus Christ, through his son. How else did God reveal himself? Through the Bible. God reveals himself. Those are the two I was thinking. There are others. Those are the two I was 
wanting to bring to your attention. God reveals himself through his son. God reveals himself through the Bible. Brothers and sisters, I want to press upon your hearts today and draw up to your minds and into your eyes the right response to the Bible. There are four of them in this passage. Take your pens and get ready to mark them. Underline them and do something that is the most difficult but the most important work. Examine your heart and pray that the Spirit of God would be the candle of the Lord searching the inward parts of your, your, your heart and your stomach because you cannot know what's in you. John, Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why Solomon gave that proverb. The Spirit of the Lord is the candle that searches everything. You're too tricky to accurately and honestly judge yourself. We always want to give ourselves a pass and say, well, I'm sure I'm judging myself correctly, and I'm actually a very good man. I'm a very dedicated Christian. Wait just there. Go back and ask for God's Spirit to come right into your soul and to tell you, do I really have these four responses to Revelation? The disciples did not have the right responses. They were confused. They were backward. They were even sinful in their responses. But I would that everyone who hears my voice would have the right response. And you must know that this week I devoted myself to prayer and I named you by name that God would have mercy on you and answer the prayer by giving you the Spirit of God and the right response to Revelation. With that as an introduction, I bring to you the first right response to Revelation. In verse 28, you have heard how I said to you. I said these things to you. Now what are they supposed to do? Look at verse 28. I go away and come again to you. If you loved me, you would do what? Underline that as number one and put a number one on the side of your Bibles. How should the disciples have responded when Jesus revealed this truth that he's going away, but then he'll come back? How should they have responded? They should have rejoiced. Let me draw a few things to your attention here under this first heading, this first response. Romans 12 verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If someone's crying, sit with them and love them. Put your arm around them. Do what you can. Weep with them and have sympathy. Something in us does that naturally. But I don't know if we're very good at rejoicing with those who rejoice. Oh yes, we'll come to a party when someone offers a party. But do you really enter into the joy of others when they have joy? When someone gets a raise, do you really put yourself in their shoes and thank God on their behalf for the good thing that's happened to them? Or in our hearts, are we secretly jealous? Oh, yeah, that's good, that's good. Why didn't it happen to me? 
Our Lord says, the right way to respond when I tell you that I'm going away is this. Rejoice. If you really loved me, that is, if you were really responding correctly, if you dedicated yourself to me, if you were truly believing in me, what would you do? You would rejoice. You would sympathize. And the greatest person with whom we must sympathize is our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says, Jesus was anointed to be the Christ. Christ means the anointed one. Jesus was anointed to be the Christ. Why? There's a reason in Hebrews when it says this. Because you have loved righteousness and hated what? Iniquity. You've hated evil. Iniquity. The reason that Jesus was anointed to be God's king over this world, the king of kings and the lord of lords, the prince of peace, is because he loved something and he hated something. Sympathy is feeling together with another person. The reason you should sympathize first with the Lord Jesus Christ is because his feelings are always correct. Perhaps there's a young girl who's 18 and she has a foolish and wicked boyfriend. And the boyfriend then drops her and she's feeling pain. And you see her and you want to feel bad with her, but inside you think, oh great. In fact, I hope you cry long enough that you'll never ever get with someone so foolish as him again. So it's sometimes difficult to sympathize with men and women because we don't always feel correctly. Sometimes people rejoice over sin. They're so happy that they were able to do a corrupt deal and thereby buy that new sports car. And they want you to rejoice with them when you don't feel you can. But you see, we must sympathize with Christ because he always has the correct hatred. He always hates the things that should be hated to the degree that they should be hated. He always loves the things that should be loved to the degree that they should be loved. And here he says, if you loved me, if you sympathized with me, if you rejoiced when I rejoiced, then, you would, or if you loved what I loved, then you would rejoice with me. Second observation I make under this response is this. Why should we rejoice when Christ is going away? Someone tell me, where is Christ going when he goes away? Okay, but before that, where is he going? He's going to die. He's going to the cross. Jesus has told his disciples that repeatedly. In fact, it was prophesied at his birth that that would happen. It was prophesied twice by an angel and then by a man in Luke chapter 2 who said, this one is set up for the rising and falling of many and a sword will pierce through your heart, Mary. And Mary kept all those things and treasured them in her heart. Jesus had predicted his death while he was on the earth and the disciples should have understood it but they did not understand it until he rose from the dead. Luke chapter 24. They should have understood it. He was telling them and here a few hours before the cross he tells them up front I'm going away. Where is he going? To the cross. Now after he dies he's going to the Father. 
Why would this be a time of rejoicing if he's going to die? Because no man takes his life from him, he lays it down freely for his what? For his sheep, John chapter 10. No one took his life from him. In one sense, Jesus was not killed. In one sense, he was, because they attacked him and and nailed him and put him on a cross. But in another sense, he was the one who on the cross said, into your hands I give my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. It was Jesus who gave up his spirit. It was not Pilate who took it. It was not the Jews. It was not the spears. It was certainly not the devil who had authority over that infinite spirit. Jesus was in control of his death and he knew when I die, I'm giving myself up for my sheep. And so when he did that, he was filled with joy because Hebrews chapter 12 says he considered the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? It was bringing many sons to glory. As we just sang about in song number 31, we just sang, he brought many sons to glory. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. He did that. This was his joy. You see, when our Lord went to die, he had joy in front of him. And if they really loved him, they would have sympathized with him and rejoiced. Oh, you're about to bring many sons, including us, to glory. But they did not sympathize. What is the right response when God reveals himself? What is the right response when Jesus Christ is made beautiful in your eyes? What's the right response when you open your Bible and you read the few words that God has given to us? Rejoice. But there's a third observation you need to notice in this verse. Verse 28. What is the theological controversy in verse 28? Can anyone tell me, look at that word in verse 28. What is the theological controversy? My father is greater than I. Have you ever thought about those words? How can the Father be greater than the Son if the Son is God Himself? We've already seen repeatedly in the Upper Room Discourse that the Son of God is God. That Jesus is God. For example, John 14, verse 1. You're believing in God? That's not enough. You've got to also believe in Well, that's either blasphemy or it's the truth. If it's the truth, then that one who says you must believe in me is God. Now, if in chapter 14, verse 1, he's God, how can he say, well, the Father is greater than me? Ladies and gentlemen, I want to somehow put into your hearts a thirst for thinking about the Trinity. God himself. Do you realize that if you are a Christian, this is what the future holds for you? You will forever be thinking about God. If that does not sound fun, the number one, you'll never go to heaven. And number two, you wouldn't want to. 
Heaven is heaven because it is the chance to know Christ. John 17, verse 3. To know Christ, to know the Father, to know the Spirit. And these three are so infinitely attractive, infinitely beautiful, infinitely glorious. Infinite means no beginning or ending. That every single day, if days there be, you will go from one ecstatic experience of overwhelming glory to another. You will, if it's possible to pause, pause and breathe and say, that that I just saw in God was the most beautiful thing. I had thought my wife was beautiful, but really she was only beautiful because in the slightest shadow of a way, her beautiful brown hair pointed something to that. I had thought my child and his birth was glorious. I thought I just wanted to repeat the, the pleasure that I had in holding that little baby, but whatever was beautiful in holding that baby was just a shadow of what was there in the Son of God. I thought that it was delicious to eat that food. I thought that what a horse were good when they were bride. But re really, the only reason I ever thought they were delicious is because Jesus is the meat that endures to eternal life. I had thought that water was good or cold drink. I had thought that coffee, I had thought tea, I had thought whatever was delicious. But is the living water. I didn't know water could ever be this thrilling. It's almost like a religious experience just drinking this water because it is religious, because it's the knowledge of God in Christ. That's what it means to go deeper and deeper into God and to learn Him and to love Him and to know Him. Does your heart say amen to what I just said? If it doesn't, you need to ask God to give you His Spirit because it doesn't matter if you've gone to church or been baptized. If your heart does not somehow have a matching chord to the notes I just played, if your heart doesn't have uh, an interlocking piece with the words and the thoughts and the concepts of God, you're not a Christian. To be a Christian is to have a, a love for God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, whom we have not seen, we love. And though we do not see Him now, yet believing, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That inexpressible and full of glory part is what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to get you to that. You see, the Father is greater than I. This is just my introductory thought on this point. Is this. There is so much wonder and beauty in the Trinity. You will go on learning for all eternity. And every time you learn something new, you'll say, this was a better thing than the last thing. This meal was better than yesterday's meal. How is it that every meal is better than the one before? In the Trinity, there is a Father and a Son and a Spirit. And the Son is begotten of the Father. Fathers beget. They don't birth. They beget. They, they generate a Son and a Father. What makes the Father a Father is this generating capacity, this, this power, this function. And the Father generates the Son when? Children are generated in a moment. But the eternal Son is eternally generated. How can that be? That's why you want to go to heaven. To just open the door a little more and see, on earth I thought I knew what generation was. I thought I knew what it was to, to sire or beget a child. But in eternity I'll see what it is to have an eternally begotten son. Something of that. God revealed himself as a father and a son. And the reason he did that is not because he was opening a drawer and 
rummaging through it, trying to find something that we could understand. No, he created Isaac and his child so that you could see what he's like. Does that make sense? He does not take things to himself because of the way we are. No. He created the whole world so we know something of who he is. In the Trinity, there is an eternal father and an eternal which means there is always an eternal hierarchy. There's always an eternal aboveness and an eternal belowness. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Very simple question. It's got to be good because it's coming from whom? It's coming from God, so it's got to be good. There's an eternal aboveness and an eternal belowness. Now, we are programmed to think that's a bad thing. So many Muslims will say, John 14, 28, Jesus can't be God because it's bad to beware. Underneath. But we say, no, 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 we start with God, whatever he says is good, and we'll take that into our world, which is why we honor women. The Bible says explicitly, husbands, love your wives, wives, obey your husbands. Which one is above, which one is below? Husband is above, wife is below. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. The husband is the head of the wife, even as... God is the head of Christ. Do you see that? That's an exact comparison so that we would know how to think about man and woman. Our world doesn't know how to think. Don't listen to our world. Our world is confused, not just confused, insane or drunk. Our world will tell you there cannot be an overness and an underness. But 1 Corinthians 11.3 says the husband is the head of the wife in the same way that the father is the head of the son. So this underness and this overness is a beautiful thing that reflects God himself. We do not believe that women are second-class citizens any more than we believe the Son is a second-class member of the Trinity. The Son is fully God, and we sing songs to him. The Son is fully God, and you must put all of your confidence in him. The Son is completely God, and if you need a picture of that, look at a good marriage. Now, there's a lot of bad marriages in the world, but find a good one and look at it. And if you don't have a good marriage that, you is, that is very near to you, that you are very near to, that's why you need to be in a godly church. Because in a true church, there will be godly marriages. If you can't find it anywhere else, at least you can find it in the pastor and his wife. Because if the pastor and his wife aren't a good marriage, the pastor can't be the? You've got to kick him out. So at least come to a true church so that all the rubbish that you're hearing about gender equality and this and this, you can at least come and see, whoa, this is what it really looks like. She's amazing and gifted and does her job well and he's got his gift and one's under, one's over, but there's no second class citizen. It is perfect equality of value. I would gladly die for her and I've proven that. And I know that she would do anything for me, and she's proven that. In the same way, you're supposed to look at a godly marriage. One more reason to be in a godly church, so that you can see what? And think clearly about what? The Father and the Son. Muslims want to say, well, 
we know the way the world works. There's men, and then women have to obey them. And a man can take up the four wives. Or if you're the prophet of God, then you can take 15 or 20 wives. And then you can also have your slaves, and you can take them as well, because that's the way it goes. Men are on the top, and they can do these things with women. So there is inherent in the religion a clear, a clear, um, what's the word? Ontological. There is a clear ontological difference. You see, ontological means being or substance or essence. Between Amy and I, there is no ontological difference. We're both humans. We're both made in the image of God. There's no ontological difference. Her blood is as valuable as my blood. Her life is as valuable as my life. Her mind and her heart and her soul and her salvation are as valuable as mine. But in the Islamic worldview, there is an ontological difference between male and female because they don't have a trinity to show us overness and underness does not mean ontological difference. One more reason that the only true religion is the religion that matches with reality. All over the world, we have men and women. There's no three. There's, there's not a third group or a fourth or a fifth. Or like Facebook had some time ago, 78. There's just two. And those two are eternally there so that you will know that there's an eternal father and an eternal son. And when Jesus says the father is greater, he means something like this. In Ephesians 1, let me give you about six of these. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It is the father who blesses his people with all spiritual blessings, not the son. It is the father who chose and predestinated all, the, all his people in Christ, Ephesians 1, 4. It is the Father who adopted all of his people in Christ, Ephesians 1, verse 5. It is the Father who receives the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1, verse 6. It is the Father, Ephesians 1, verse 10, who gathers up all things into his Son. And in one of the most amazing statements in all of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us this. Christ will reign until he has put all enemies under his what? Under his feet. He's going to reign until all his enemies are under his feet. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, it says one of the most mind-boggling but glorious statements. If you see that Christ reigns until he puts everything under his feet, you've got to know that he is God because he's the king. Everything and everyone is under him. 1 Corinthians 15, 27. All things under Christ's feet. The very next verse. He, Christ, will deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father. And then he himself will be subject to God so that God may be all in all. In eternity future, the one who is God, who has everything under his feet, is going to gladly pick it all up in one hand and say all this, everything, all time and history and world, all art and history and literature and language, all science, all economics, all money, all matter, all planets and stars and galaxies, I hold in the palm of my hand and I deliver it to you, Father. And then when the Father has gladly taken it and all his people are rejoicing him, then the Son comes as well and says, and lastly, I submit myself for all eternity, day upon day, if days there are, moment after moment, if moments there be, all of his people will look at this and say, he's the king, and yet he's under. This is too beautiful for words. Ladies, you are not second class citizens. You are a picture of the son. Rejoice in that. The father is greater than I. 
This is the gospel. This is glorious. It's beautiful and it explains everything in the world. It shows us why Karl Marx, the father of communism, was wrong. Karl Marx's great problem was distinction. He believed that having an over and an under was the worst thing in the world. And so he wanted to destroy the overness and the underness. Feminism in another, that was economics. Karl Marx was attacking the economic world. In, in the family, feminism says they hate having an overness and an underness. And so they're going to attack it. In every sphere of life, there are those who say, no, we can't have over and under. We can't have this hierarchy. But there is a hierarchy because it reflects the mind of God. Well, that's the first response to a right revelation. That's the first right response to revelation is this rejoicing in who God is and in what God has done for his people. The second response is in the very next verse. And it's explicit here. You can see it in verse 29 very clearly. Can anyone tell me what the second right response is in verse 29? And now I have told you before it comes to pass, I told you this so that, what? You would believe. That is the second one, number two. The first one is to rejoice even in uncertainty and fear. The second one is to believe in Christ. It says believe, but there's no object after believe. Is there? What are you supposed to believe in verse 29? It doesn't say. But believe is what we call a transitive verb. It's a verb that you've got to have. What would it technically be called a transitive verb? It's a verb that requires an object. You've got to believe in something. And thankfully, we know what we have to believe into. Go back to chapter 13, verse 19. Someone just, let's go quickly through these. You tell me, what do you have to believe in verse, chapter 13, verse 19? Chapter 13, 19, what do you have to believe? You have to believe that Jesus is God, chapter 13, verse 19. What do you have to believe in chapter 14, verse 1? Believe in God, but also... In Christ, there's the object. In chapter 14, verse 10, what do you have to believe? Well, you have to believe that Christ is in the Father, right? Do you not believe that I am in the Father? You've got to believe that there's a connection, an eternal connection between the Son and the Father. Uh, Again, in chapter 10, you have to believe that Christ's words. Look in verse 10. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak of myself. Believe in these words. Verse 11, what do you have to believe? Again, believe in the Father. What's the second believe? Believe me for the work's sake. Chapter 14, verse 12, what must you believe? He who believes on me. Now, with that, go to 1429. What words can you understand to be there even though the Spirit of God did not write the words? What must you believe in chapter 14, verse 29? If you listen to these words, then you will know when it has come to pass, you will be able to believe in Jesus, in Christ. That's the answer. The right response 
When Christ reveals himself is to believe in him. The right response when God reveals in his word is to believe in him. Friends, that is where we get the doctrine called sola fide. Don't ever forget that. It's one of the five solas on which all the way of salvation is built. What are the five solas? Bible alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to God alone be glory. Five of them. Bible alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to God alone be glory. And that third one, faith alone. In Latin, it's called sola fide. Bibiri, uh, sorry, uh, rutendo fezi. Cutenda cete. Rutendo cete. Ripfumelo insena. Is it geloof? Was faith? Geloof. Geloof. Alien? Faith alone? This is the doctrine of faith alone, which means we don't trust in our baptism, we don't trust in our works, we don't trust in other things. Now listen to this. Just yesterday, with the visitors from Johannesburg, we went out to Tiani, and Paul asked me to preach at this Bible study he's got, and there was about 12 people there listening very attentively. These are all unconverted people in a very poor place. And he asked me to preach, and I had the joy of preaching on turning to Christ. And as I preached, I said, some of you think that you are a Christian, but you need to ask yourself, how do I know that I am a Christian? And I'll tell you up front the wrong answer. This is what I preached yesterday. I said, here's the wrong answer. If you say, I was baptized, I pray, I go to church, I'm a church member, I'm a good person, I read my Bible. If it starts with I, you're probably in the wrong part, unless it's I am very bad. The only I that should be there is I'm bad, okay? Any other I's, you're going the wrong path and you're, you're, you're completely confused. And then I, I took the next 20 minutes or so to explain to them, you must say, Christ died for me. Christ gave me his righteousness. Christ prays for me. Christ stands between me and the Father. It must be Christ. As soon as that sermon ended, a sharp young lady of 22 years old named Shiluba, very kind, gracious young girl. She came with us to go up on the mountain with another two or three people from the village there. And as we were driving, I asked her, oh, are you far from being a Christian, close to being a Christian, or have you already become a Christian? She said, I'm already a Christian. Oh, okay, how do you know? And she said, well, I was baptized. And I said, have you ever heard someone say that if you say I was baptized, that's the wrong answer? Oh, I think I did. <laughs> did you just hear me say that back there? Eesh. So, so Shiluba, can you try again? How do you know that you're a Christian? Well, eesh, I go to church. Do you see the mind of man is programmed to return to what? Me, me, I'm a good guy. And some of you might be like that. If that, is the, if that is the prison that you're in this morning, I want to give you deliverance. We have a real deliverance ministry here. 
We're delivering you from the prison of foolish thinking, thinking you're such a good guy. You're not a good guy. You're a bad guy. You're a child of Satan. You're an absolute beggar. You're lost and blind. You're a sheep or worse, you're a goat. If you say that's so offensive to me, I'm just using the exact words used by Jesus Christ. And if we can see that's who I am, but Christ stands up for me, then there's hope for you. Maybe today, before you go home, I'll say, hey, good to see you. How are you doing? And I'm going to ask you, so are you close to salvation, far from salvation, or have you been saved a long time ago? And I'm telling you right now, if you say, oh, ndochizakare, I'm going to ask you, what am I going to ask you next? Uzidibahani. How do you know? And if your answer says anything about ndi, I'm going to say, okay, you missed it. You need to download that sermon and pray for God to open your eyes. This is the right response. It is believing on Christ. Friends, what is believing? We covered this two weeks ago. There's two S's. What are the two S's? Seeing the beauty of Christ. And what's the second S? Say that clearly. Two S's. If you want to know what it means to believe, here's what it means to believe. See the beauty of Jesus. Number two, set value on the beauty of Jesus. It means those two things. What does it mean to believe? It means to see that Jesus is beautiful. And then number two, your will has to make a choice to set value on that beauty. If you have not done that, you have not believed in Jesus. Or, listen to me right now, if, if that's happening as I speak, then you are being converted right now on the 6th of June at 9.35 or 9.40 in the morning. You are being awakened and saved. It's a work of grace because we believe, number three, grace alone. If you are now seeing, oh, I see it. Suddenly it's clear to me. Now I get it. Jesus is beautiful. And, and I'm going I'm to put all my life's worth and value on him. When you see and set, then you have believed. Friends, this teaches us another lesson that I would call to your attention in verse 29. Now I have told you before it comes to pass, so that when it does happen, you might believe. Is faith based on a blind leap in the dark? As some philosophers I mentioned before have taught, Kierkegaard most notably. Is faith based on, well, I can't see God, I can't touch him. <coughs> How can I ever know for sure? I just eventually got to close my eyes and say, you know what? I don't know. I'm just going to believe. Is that what faith is? In this verse, what does Jesus say? He says, I told you something would happen. I told you that I would die and that then what would happen? I would come back. I said, I'm going to leave, and then you're going to see me again. So you're going to watch. In a few hours, you don't even know how I'm going to leave, but I'm going to leave. And then suddenly when you think, I'll never see him again, you're going to see me again. When you see that happen, I want you to do what in verse 29? The Bible is rational. 
It is not merely rational. It is not only rational. It is certainly not rationalistic. But it is rational. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Our minds work very badly if they are the ultimate standard for truth. But our minds work very well if they are in submission to God. Some time ago, I was evangelizing over here on Crock Street. And I came to a shop. And I usually don't evangelize in shops. But this time I thought to evangelize because they were selling books for a church here in Lewis Cheekart. So I stepped in to see the books. And as I was looking at the books, I realized it was all rubbish. And I spoke to the lady who was selling them. And I said, do you have any books, something like this, do you have any books that just teach the Bible? And in our conversation, she said, well, it seems to me that you want to use your mind too much. This is almost a word-for-word quote. She then said, you need to stop using your mind. Oh, like you've done it, apparently. (laughs) Friends, verse 29 teaches us, use your mind. Open your eyes. Jesus said one, two, three. Now you go look. If you see one, two, three, that's pretty good proof of what Jesus said. We need to use our minds. There is a false teaching around that says, and it will sound like it's clever because the man will talk very confidently and he'll strut back and forth and he'll laugh while he's talking as if he's so far above you and as if you're below him and as if he knows so much. Oh, it's so difficult just to give you all the beauties and wonders of my own glorious mind. As if he's the fourth member of the Trinity or some wickedness. No, no, no. What they will do is say, Oh, well, you know, there's a, there's a spirit realm and there's a physical realm. You hear people talking like that? This is, this is metaphysical rubbish. That, just stick with the words of the Bible. There's a spirit realm. There's a physical realm. And if you really want to understand the spirit, you need to put aside the, the realm of the body and what blah, 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 blah. What is this kind of Gnosticism? Show me the Bible. Teach the Bible, man. But what they're doing is this. They're trying somehow to separate you from your brain. Because your brain is sitting there thinking, that doesn't make sense. That, 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 that doesn't make sense that we should you know, bark like dogs or roll on the floor or cluck like chickens. Or I, There's a video of this woman in a church, quote church, who said, I realized when I shut off my brain that I needed to howl at the moon. And so she's in this quote church howling like a wolf. And I thought, who, who is the elder who should have said, no, 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 sorry, sorry, young lady, you just sit down. Shh, quiet, quiet, you sit here. Why did that not happen? Well, because they had heard all oh, the spirit around them, blah, blah, blah. They're trying to separate your mind as if you cannot trust your mind. You cannot trust your mind as the ultimate standard. But in submission to God, you must trust your mind. And you all do it every day, don't you? You left your house this morning knowing when I'm done with church, I'm going to be able to find my way back. To my house. You trusted your mind that you would not forget how to get back to your house. No one this morning put a, put a, a, a trail of breadcrumbs. I better be able to follow these back after church because I don't know if I can trust my mind. You all trust your mind. We can't live without it. How many of us ever have real fits of worry? 
man, I might forget my wife's name tomorrow. We know that we're not going to forget our wife's name. We're not going to forget, forget how to go back to our house. The job that you did on Friday, none of you are worried. When I go to work tomorrow, I don't know if I'm going to even be able to remember where my workstation is or my desk. What am I? And this bank card in my pocket? I don't even know what this is here for. I don't remember how much money I have. I don't remember what bank I'm at. We all trust our minds as we should to live. But when it comes to the Bible, Satan wants you to stop using your mind in submission to God. And he wants you to use your mind in a foolish and backward way, only for entertainment. This verse 29 throws down rationalism. The rationalistic revolution that was begun with Descartes, or maybe continued with Descartes. René Descartes was a famous philosopher in France. Almost all the bad philosophers came from France. And René Descartes came up with the idea that I think, therefore I am. He was trying to find an ultimate standard for knowledge that was not based on God. And when René Descartes said, I could say, I think because the Bible said God created me. No, I don't like that. I think because other people told me and no, 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 no. So he came up with this famous line, I think, therefore I am. I am the final standard. And that's the kind of rationalism that biblical Christians reject. But biblical Christians do not reject using our minds rationally. Learn math. Study theology, read books, learn Greek and Hebrew, read. The Bible's a rational book from a rational mind. We don't need to separate the spirit and the mind, body. And, no, 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 no. Keep all that stuff connected. Se by the way, I'll give you a hint. Separating the spirit and the body, it's called death. Okay, so you don't want to go that way. Follow your mind in submission to the Bible. That's what our Lord Jesus teaches as the second right response to Revelation. Well, brothers and sisters, there are two more right responses to Revelation, but I think we're going to leave it here. I think, I think I'd just like to close by saying this. Jesus spoke to these disciples. He urged them to remember the words that he had given and he said, if you really pay attention to what I've said, you're going to respond in four ways. Here's two of them. I want you to rejoice in God and in me. And I want you to believe in me. And I want you to believe in me, not blindly. Don't say, well, I just can't ever tell. Open your mind, open your eyes, read and study and think, and then believe in Christ with all your heart. May God help every one of us to do that today. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and help us. Be to us that help and that strength and that guide that we need. Save us from our sins. Fill us with your spirit. Make us to be born again. Pray for saving grace. In Jesus' name, amen.